Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here, Matt Myers, MLB national editor. Matt, hi. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm great. I'm getting excited for the All-Star game coming up. We went through our teams last week. We had a lot of fun with that. Uh, we're going to get right to our guests this week because we have uh, someone who I, I find just fascinating. 50 years in baseball. Uh, we have Jerry Weinstein on the phone. Uh, he has done all sorts of things. He's been a college coach for decades. He's worked for the Rockies in a variety of, uh, of capacities. He's the director of player development for the Dodgers. Currently managing a team in the Cape Cod League. He's going to be managing the Israel team, the World Baseball Classic. Uh, I don't know that we've ever had anybody on this show who has had such a wide variety of baseball experience. Jerry, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure, Mike. Look forward to it. You were, uh, you've done, obviously, a lot of things when you're working for the Rockies, but one of the things that stood out to me is for several years you were the defensive positioning coach. Uh, and so I'm really interested in kind of how you would approach that. Is it just spray charts as far as data goes? Like how did you decide who should be where and who should be shifted and when? Uh, kind of tell us what the decision-making goes into that. Well, actually, for, uh, I did it for one year. Uh, the one year, the first year in the big leagues, I just handled the catchers. And then the, the, the second year, Bill Guyvet asked me to handle the defensive positioning and the catchers. And so what I did is uh, I went through uh, basically the inside edge people, and we had a database. And uh, my, my big thing was uh, that we had a big enough sampling where we could make good decisions. And so I tried to position based on each individual pitcher. But un unfortunately, you, you just don't have enough sampling for each hitter and, and each pitcher so we did that our pitcher and pitchers like him so we we found a a, a, com, a comparable uh, or a number of comparables because i wanted to have i felt like if i didn't have at least 40 uh, at bats I, I couldn't uh accurately uh align people so uh what we did is we we, we basically went by velocities and uh and then we broke it up by uh pitch tendencies relative to uh, percentage of fastballs, breaking balls, change-ups, et cetera, that were thrown by our pitcher against that hitter and pitcher liked that guy. So when we had a big enough sampling, uh, we uh, we felt comfortable with our positioning. And it's interesting to me that you, you put so much emphasis on your pitcher because I'd love to know how much coordination is there or should there be between a pitcher and a defense because it's always real weird to me when I see a pitcher throwing an outside pitch against the heavily shifted hitter and then maybe that lets him go opposite field. Yeah, I, I think that uh, most of the data indicates that uh, regardless of location, guys hit balls uh, in particular areas or a high percentage of balls. You know, the one thing that you need to understand, and, and that's hard for the players to understand, is that you can't play everywhere. You know, when we're in a shift and a ball, a 16-hopper rolls through uh, the middle of second base or something like that, guys, uh, you know, they, a little bit of eye rolling going on. But, uh, you know, you just try and be in the best position you can be for the majority of uh, contact. And, uh, you know, I think the players feel like, well, if I'm going to pitch a guy a particular way, he's going to, I can direct where he's going to hit the ball. We, we've and, all uh, that just go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. No, finish, finish your thought. I'm, I'm just that just does not seem to be the case. You know, guys hook outside pitches and they play inside pitches and they they pretty much hit uh, hit balls in in vectors where they normally hit balls. And it's not so much uh, pitch related. Now there is some inside game stuff relative to pitch by pitch with your corner players getting a change up from uh, from the the middle infielder to letting him know that well there's a strong possibility that this left hander is going to hook this change up down the right field line so we might cheat our positioning or lean a little bit or anticipate a little bit more based on 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 the pitch that's being thrown 
but in general, uh, we're aligned where we think they're going to hit the ball, regardless of where the pitch is going and regardless of the type of pitch. Were there are there players player a player or players that you thought were the toughest to kind of quote unquote position against? Well, no, I, I, I don't think so. I think that, you know, A, I didn't do it long enough. You know, one year is not long enough to have enough of a sampling to know that, A, we're positioned against this guy and, and he's flipping balls uh, through, the, through the six hole and we got him shifted in a particular way. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't have the I, – I couldn't honestly say, yeah, this guy or that guy, to be quite honest with you. We've all heard stories about pitchers who really don't like it when, when their infielders shift behind them. But I've been interested about how the middle infielders adjust to that. And uh, the reason I ask is because we had Alex Cora on our show recently, who obviously played in the bigs for a very long time. And he said that when shifted, it's actually really hard to turn a double play because the infielders just aren't used to the angle. It's kind of a different throw. Uh, you know, how hard is that for the infielders? And did anybody really say they weren't comfortable with it? Well... Guys get comfortable through reps, and you, and one of the things maybe we're a little reticent is uh, 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 is getting those guys enough reps from different uh, spots on the field, turning double plays uh, with with the shift. You have to spend some time so the guys get used to receiving throws from different angles and having runners coming at them from from different spots and and making feeds from different areas. So uh, anybody can get used to doing what they, especially big league players, because they're so skilled that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, if, you get a, if you get enough practice time and you get enough feeds and you field enough ground balls in certain areas, especially, you know, that left-handed shift where that second baseman is playing well out on the grass and now he has to field a lot of balls, dirt grass, and maybe get close to the lip. You know, you just, you just need enough reps where it becomes second nature. Well, I think it's an interesting way to put that because, uh, you know, one of the guys who's a superstar in the big leagues right now for the Rockies is Nolan Arenado. Uh, and he kind of came up with a little bit of a, a questionable reputation as a fielder and then, you know, hard work. He's, he's just elite. He's probably the best defensive third baseman in baseball. Uh, and he's mentioned you by name as, as someone who's really helped with that because you were his manager uh, in A-ball. And, and he, a quote to yeah, ESPN, I've... he said, Jerry Weinstein's the one who really helped me with my feet. He helped me learn how to move my feet. And, and I'm curious, like, how is it really just footwork that allowed him to become that elite? And what kind of changes was that? Well, he was pretty elite from day one that I saw him. I don't ever remember him being suspect, a suspect defender because he was he was the same type of defender in Modesto. I want to say maybe 2011 as he is today in the big leagues. He, I mean, he was making numerous oh wow sports center type plays in Modesto. Uh, what we did do is we helped, and, and he's too kind to say that I, I you know, he's 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 got a, has a great foundation. His dad did a tremendous job in developing him as a baseball player and. And as a person, and I was had a small piece in that. But what we did do is is help him figure out a routine that would help him. But he's got, uh, and and we changed his uh, his lateral uh, uh, attack on balls to more of a directional drop step uh, before he crossed over, so he could gain ground a little bit more efficiently. But instinctively, he's got the best instincts for this game of anybody I've ever seen in over 50 years. He's got a tremendous internal clock uh, in terms of how hard he has to throw the ball. He's got tremendous internal compass. He knows where, where he has to throw the ball without even looking at it. He could play this game blindfolded for all intents and purposes. He's, you know, he's got just two uh, – he's got unbelievable DNA. Plus, he's, uh, he's got a passion for the game, and he's, he's a real hard, intelligent worker. He doesn't waste any time. 
and uh, and he enjoys what he's doing. He likes it. That, that is that's high praise. <laughs> I mean, that's real high praise. Gary, <laughs> um, you know your your Twitter handle is is refers to catching um, J1 catching, and I, for those who don't follow Jerry, you should. He's one of the best follows. Uh, I learn something every day from uh, from his account. So I want to ask a question about catching specifically pitch framing. Is that something that you think can can be taught? And if so, kind of how do you how do you do it? Oh, a- absolutely can be taught. I mean, there isn't anything uh, given a basic uh, skill uh, foundation, which most professional players have. There isn't anything that can't be taught in this game. Now, certainly you, you can't teach speed and probably can't teach power, but both those things can be improved. There isn't anything with with the right type of approach that can't be improved. And, and uh, I, I, I use the term framing in a book that I wrote. I was with, I was a catching coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers, and, and that was a term we used in 1980. It, it's called the Brewers' Way to Play or something like that. It was a handbook, and all the coordinators wrote a chapter in it, and, and we were using that term at that time. But it's finally, with the, with the new analytics and the metrics, people are understanding the importance of one pitch. You know, this game is a series of single pitches, and that one pitch can have a tremendous effect on the outcome of the game. And, uh, and by, you know, basically as a catcher, you're trying to make sure that every strike is called a strike. That's your, that's your number one job. Now, the better guys will take uh, the straw ball, as I call it. Uh, could be a strike, could be a ball, uh, and get a high percentage of straw balls called strikes, and the really good guys out of the strike zone called strikes by virtue of their technique. But there's a very specific but broad, specific but broad uh, 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 group of techniques that will lead to guys being able to be efficient behind the plate and getting a high percentage of strikes called. Now we can now we can measure it. And uh, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, do you think that it's more difficult to be an elite framer now because the numbers are there and umpires know that you know this catcher is really going to be the kind of guy who's who's going to try to quote unquote steal a strike? Is is it harder now that that's kind of known? Yeah, I don't. I, I think steal a strike is is not the right term because in reality you're just making sure that that you catch a ball and present the the pitch in such a way that the umpire can be accurate. Because you know the umpires they want to call strike strikes because they're being evaluated just like the catchers are being evaluated. And in essence, you're you're he's your teammate behind the plate. We want to make sure that we get this thing right because ultimately he's being graded on his ability to call strikes, strikes, and balls, balls. So anything that I can do to help him do that is, uh, is going is to be beneficial to both of us. And I don't think it's so much getting uh, the better guys not necessarily getting balls called strikes, but it's getting the marginal pitch that could go either way, you know, the one that, you know, is just nicking the, the black uh, that turns that 17-inch plate into a 22-inch plate and the, and the absolute strike that, that some – catchers lose on occasion getting called a strike and not so much the balls called being called strikes uh jerry um you know, this or as i understand it you're working in the as a manager in the cape cod, cod league and for the listeners who aren't familiar that's basically a college all-star league where uh, most of the be- many of the best college players will will play it's a 10-team league and it's really a, a, more than anything a showcase for scouts where they use wood bats so scouts can see the, see these guys hit and pitch against wood bats. Now, has any of the sort of advanced 
technology, things like TrackMan, uh, been integrated into the Cape Cod League, where we're starting to say, oh, you know, we see this guy's exit velocity, and now we have a really good feel for how that's going to translate when he when he gets to pro ball. Yeah, there's TrackMan at every facility. Is that really so, is that really changed the way that you're able to evaluate hitters in the Cape Cod League? Well, unfortunately, we don't get the <laughs> we don't get the data. The major league teams get the data. Uh, and uh, so we're we're not using that data necessarily. I, I, I there's probably a way for me. I, I could get the data from from the Rockies, but we haven't had. I mean, we're so busy right now. We're just trying to keep our head above water with games and movement of players and all all the stuff like that, and all the time we're spending on the field relative development. But from an evaluative standpoint, the the, the pro people are being able to get all the TrackMan data. They get the all the exit speeds and spin axes and release points and, and spin rates and all that, all that other stuff is uh, through the TrackMan systems that are in place in the Cape. Obviously, you're, you're in Massachusetts for the Cape League, and in a couple of weeks, uh, you'll be in Boston at Sabre Seminar uh, giving a presentation. What kind of talks will you be giving? I'm going to talk about pitch calling. Pitch calling. And, uh, yeah, and so, uh, which is, uh, it's kind of a uh, uh, an elusive Topic. Most people really don't understand uh, the process, and uh, and uh, I think it'll be informative for a lot of people relative to how liquid the pitch calling process is. That there's not one right pitch, and usually it's the quality of the pitch, and and the wrong pitch thrown with confidence is much better than the right pitch thrown with doubt, and just some some you know real basic techniques. We've got so much data in, especially in professional baseball in terms of videotapes and scouting reports by advanced scouts and so on and so forth, that uh, it, it can be confusing. And, and sometimes you have to simplify it and factor it down so that you can use it in a game without getting vapor locked. And so that's kind of what I'm talking about, how to, how to simplify the system that, that can help you uh, be the best you can be on a particular, the best version of you on a particular pitch. And uh, usually it's, it's about the quality of the pitch and not so much the type of pitch or the movement or the velocity or anything else it usually gets back down to location. Now, from a pitch calling perspective, do you think it's kind of more important to have a catcher who quote-unquote calls a good game or a catcher and pitcher who are on the same page? Well, that's one of my pet peeves, being on the same page, because the reality is the pitcher decides what pitch he's going to throw. The catcher makes a suggestion, and ideally you have some type of system where the pitcher can – can rub and change the pitch himself so that he takes the responsibility for the pitch. Uh, there, there's a, a certain amount of transfer of blame when the pitcher shaking guys off, the catchers off, or you know, a pitch gets hit and why'd you call that pitch? Ultimately, the responsibility responsibility for what pitch is being thrown is uh, is on the pitcher, and it's nice when they're in in concert on on the pitch and it, it speeds up the game, especially the tempo of the game. But the reality is that ultimately the pitcher's responsibility is is what pitch is thrown and where it's thrown, uh, because uh, he's got he's got to live with that. And you know, hopefully they're they're together on that. But if they're not, it shouldn't be the end of the world. And uh, and when when guys get beat up in games, it's usually usually the quality of the pitch rather than the type of pitch that's thrown. 
Uh, that's so interesting to me because I think we know that we don't fully capture all the values that, that catchers bring, and I think pitch calling is a big part of that. Um, Jerry Weinstein, thanks so much for your time. Follow Jerry at JW on Catching on Twitter. He'll be at Sabre Seminar. Uh, Jerry, really interesting stuff. Thanks so much. You bet, Mike. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Jerry Weinstein was fascinating. And you could tell, like, he's got five decades of baseball experience, and uh, he he's called Nolan Arenado the best instincts he's had in 50 years in baseball. Yeah, That's that amazing. was... He, Needless to say, Jerry's a fan of Nolan. I mean, we're all fans of Nolan Arenado. <laughs> but no, he's a and and he said he invented the term straball, <laughs> which I plan to use extensively. <laughs> um, and yes, I apologize for mispronouncing his Twitter handle. A J one is J W on catching. On catching. And really, it's 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 truly fantastic. He basically every morning he will put up a couple of highlights, defensive highlights, and kind of explain what went into. The defender and what made a great play or made a great pitch it's you learn something from his twitter handle every day yeah he had one the other day where jose fernando struck out anthony rizzo and he said fernando fans rizzo on a back foot slider make sure you aim for the front foot so it's not leave it up and that's one of those things you never really think about unless you're in the game all the time like jerry is and it's, it kind of just really it teaches you a lot about pitching and defense so i thought that was really cool uh, we should talk about Melvin Upton. I know that's not a sentence you hear all that much here in baseball, but... Cool. Nice segue. Melvin Upton. Hey, uh, NOS, Rockies. Sure, Rockies. whatever. We're not smooth. Uh, we have to talk about Melvin Upton because uh, when Matt came into the office this morning and he looks at me and he says, do you think Melvin Upton had the best stat cast game ever last night? And uh, maybe you're onto something, right? T- explain why. Um, so first inning, he hits a 465-foot home run, dead center field at Pitco Park. The ball does not carry that well at Pitco Park. 465, the longest home run a Padres hit in the StatCast era. The previous high was by his brother, Justin Upton, 458. Uh, so, nice game right there on its own. That's the eighth longest homer by anybody in the big leagues this year. 108 miles an hour, 24-degree launch angle. That's going to lead to distance, as it obviously did. So, good start. Then, an inning later, J.J. Hardy at the plate hits one dead center field. Upton, in only his second, his first start in center field since April 17th, and his second center field start of the year, Goes straight back, goes over the wall to rob J.J. Hardy of home Like, literally, he reaches well beyond the wall to rob the home run. Great play. Great Tra- play. Travels cool. 98 feet to make the catch and root efficiency 96.1. The, the fence there is 396 feet away, all right? And the projected distance of that ball was 403 feet, and he still caught it, right? <laughs> Which should tell you a little bit about how high he had to get to get that ball. So there's that. And then, oh, yeah. He gets back, throws the first base to double off, and I'll be honest, I don't remember who the, number, the runner was. I think it was Weeders or Trumbo. I'm not sure. It, it does not some, matter. <laughs> some guy who thought it was a home run. And uh, 91.9 miles per hour on the throw, 240 feet. Uh, just the third player in the StatCast era to have a play in which he covered more than 90 feet and a throw of more than 90 miles per hour for a double play. On the same play. The other two guys, Danny Santana, and interestingly enough, Albert Almora, who has only been in the big leagues for like a minute. Uh, but you're right, that was a really uh, fascinating play. And then that's not it. He also made a great sliding catch later in the game, and he stole a base too. All right? That's the best stack cast game I think we've ever seen. It's by, of all people, no disrespect to Melvin Upton. Well, I mean, I will say, I mean, this guy was once maybe the best prospect in baseball yep. and has always been this guy who had this incredible talent. He's battled some shoulder problems. He's shown flashes, the most notably, granted, I'm dating myself here, I think it was the 2008 NLCS where he went on a Daniel Murphy-esque, yeah. uh, sorry, ALCS, LCS run where he hit like five homers and just beat the Red Sox on his own, basically. Realize how many years it's been since 2008 and feel extremely old about yourself. <laughs> yes. uh, here's the thing. He's actually, he was, let's, let's face it, he was a tax on the, the trade that got him uh, 
from Atlanta to San Diego. No right? question. It was, it, it, they had to eat that to get Craig Kimbrell, right? He's actually been pretty valuable. Two years as a Padre, 530 plate appearances, 6% above average, 17 homers, 27 stolen bases, and essentially one full season worth of play. Good defense, obviously, as we've seen. They could maybe trade him. He's got about 24 or so million dollars left for this year and next year. Not a superstar, not the guy we thought he'd be, but that for a guy who'd kind of hit rock bottom, he's turned himself into actually a surprisingly useful player. And he's a, he'd be a valuable bench piece, can probably play any outfield position. Yeah. He's got speed off the bench. He can take a walk. He can hit a homer. Like on a, on a playoff team, if he's your fourth outfielder, that is a great fourth outfielder yeah and, and it's really it's it's a lot of fun to see him bounce back like that and it's also more fun to see him do these things that we can measure and, and earlier in the season he had a straight steal of home as we also discussed, oh that was amazing one of the more exciting plays of the year so the guy can still can still wow you on a baseball field he hasn't has not been the player that people thought he would be when he was the number two overall pick in the draft but he still has skills melvin upton uh currently a member of the san diego padres will probably not be representing the padres in san diego for the all-star game and the reason I bring that up is because uh, I've been writing and tweeting like my potential all-star picks, like either either what I think should happen or what I think might happen. And what I keep coming back to is the fact that I've had a real hard time putting more than one or two Texas Rangers on the team. Rangers have the most wins in baseball, believe it or not. And I think Ian Desmond is an obvious all-star pick. And Cole, Cole Hamill's probably going to make it too, but that's it. Right? Cole Hamill's, by the way, just as an aside, he may end up starting the all-star game, I think partially because he's from San Diego, so I could easily see him getting these sort of sentimental nod i have i have feelings and opinions about that that are better left unsaid i'm just saying dark horse he's had a real weird season by the way he's had his second best era 260 which is great he's also allowed more walks and home runs than he ever has which it's a real weird season the point is the rangers are great this year but in a weird way right like the cubs are great because the cubs are great at everything they're great at hitting and pitching and defense and you name it the rangers really haven't been like by ops plus and weighted runs created plus they've been about five percentage points below average uh, their bullpen has been the worst in the American League. The, the starting rotation has been okay, but everybody's hurt. Right? They, they, over, as a team, they have the lowest strikeout rate in baseball. Now, the defense has been very good, so there's that. And it's real weird to think about. How does a team that's kind that, of below I mean, that's sort of a big thing. The defense is good. That's well, a big thing. You know what I mean. Yes, yeah. the defense is great. But it, it's real. Like, how does a team that's not a great at hitting and not great at pitching have the best record in baseball or the most wins in baseball? And uh, we kind of looked into this and wrote about it. It's a little bit about timing, I think. And, uh, we, we, you know, you can look at cluster luck, for example. If you think about it, base hits are not created equal. If you scatter four singles over the course of a game, they probably don't do much. If you put four of them in a row, you probably score a run or two, right? I mean, that's it's not a better production, but it's a, a better chance of winning baseball games. And I think that's what's happening here. We looked at the, uh, there's a stat out there called cluster luck. They are first in baseball more than double that of second place San Diego. You know, 26 extra runs on offense, 25 prevented on defense just from clustering or not clustering these runs together. That's really, like, powerful when you're trying to win baseball games. Yeah, and I think it's it's in a, it's a question is whether or not it's quite, kind of a repeatable skill. It's not. I can answer probably, that. It's not. Probably not. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people, will, you know, this will end up being a discussion point for them, much as it was for the Royals in years past of, you know, that they had this magical ability um, to string hits together and that they were quote-unquote clutch or not. I agree with you. It's not really a repeatable skill, but where this bodes well for the Rangers is the fact that they've sort of banked these 51 wins while basically getting nothing from you, Darvish. So when, assuming Darvish can come back and, and be some version of you, Darvish, that yeah. we know and love, even if they kind of regress in this, you know, cluster category, there there's clear room for them to improve in, in other aspects. Yeah, Darvish or Chu, who you know missed most of the first half with leg injuries, and now he's come back and he's hit really well. So you're right. Even though I don't believe this kind of 
luck or whatever will go on. The fact is that they have they have those wins. They're 10 games up on the Astros. Uh, they're in a good spot. And I will say I picked them before the season. Dusting off my shoulder here. Thank you. I know everybody else picked the Astros. I went with the Texas Rangers. Uh, since um, since Jason, our database guy, put so much effort into it, I have to at least note the stat he helped me come up with here. They have the second most streaks of three or more consecutive hits this year. They've, they've done that 55 times. The only team to do some more is the Red Sox, but the difference is that the Red Sox are the best offense in baseball, probably. They have talent up and down the lineup. I, I think that's not about clustering. It's just that everybody hits. I mean, they had two guys who had hitting streaks of above 25 Games right. long this year, which goes to show this is a team can string together hits. Right. As opposed to the Rangers, who I think this is, you know, they don't get the most hits, but they put them in the, in the right order, I guess. Uh, and it's an interesting way to see that's actually how a below average offense is sixth overall in runs per game. Now, one more thing I want to hit on before we sign off is uh, our next MLB Plus game or games. Two you games. Want, two MLB Plus games Thursday and Friday. Two games that on the schedule probably a month ago seemed a little more <laughs> dramatic. And NLCS Way to pump people up. <laughs> Um, still very interesting games. Mets, Mets, Cubs, Mets, Cubs from City Field. Four game series over the holiday weekend. Still a very interesting series. Obviously, with the injuries the Mets have had, maybe lose a little bit of, little bit of its luster. But uh, Thursday night, we're going to see a pitcher who's in the news right now for not really the best reasons. Uh, that's that's Stephen Matz. Stephen Matz is going to start on Thursday night. He was supposed to start on Wednesday night. He got pushed back. Everybody in the world now knows that Stephen Matz has bone chips in his elbow, and uh, he's going to try to pitch through it. I'd like to say I'm optimistic about that, but there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, as, as you mentioned this morning, he just has an extensive injury history. The guy has been, the, he got drafted seven years ago, almost exactly seven years ago, because we just had the draft. He's thrown fewer than 500 total innings, which is, that's insane. He didn't pitch until 2012 because he blew out his elbow. Uh, last year, he came up to the Mets and he tore his lat. Now he's got the elbow thing. But what really stands out to me is what happened last week. He pitched against the Braves, uh, zero strikeouts, right? Yeah, I saw. Said? I was I was watching that game and I saw. I wasn't. I, I was watching the game. I'll admit I wasn't paying that close attention. And then I saw afterwards came out like I think the he was laboring against yeah. the Braves, not a great offense. And then I saw he came out in the fifth inning and I saw zero strikeouts and I was like. Seems like something might be amiss. Yeah, and we know that he has basically stopped throwing a slider. He, he had thrown it like 15% of the time through his first nine starts and like 5% of the time the last couple starts. But his quote from after that game last week was, I couldn't finish my pitches, right? And you think about what that means. It can mean a lot of different things. We looked at the uh, the data here for his sinker. Uh, velocity didn't change. He actually threw 94 miles an hour in his sinker last week. That's about his average. That's pretty good. The spin rate was up by a lot. You know, he's usually around 2,000 RPM, sometimes a little over, a little under. 21.25 last week. You might think higher spin rate is good. Not, not for, for a sinker. sinker. <laughs> not for a sinker. You want low spin, you want that ball to dive. High spin on the sinker means it doesn't dive, and then it's not a sinker, it's a meatball. Uh, and most interestingly to me, his extension was down by a lot. You know, he's usually about 6.5, 6.6 feet in front of the mound, you know, extending his arm. Only 6.3 feet. And that sure, sure looks to me like a guy who's having you know, he's uncomfortable with his mechanics because his elbow hurts. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I sort of, in a preface this, as you may be aware, I'm not a doctor, but... Um, <laughs> oh, news to me. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the reports are basically like you can pitch through a bone spur because it doesn't affect your ligament. And I, I mean, obviously, that seems to be the conventional wisdom. But what, what, what I wonder about, and this is something that a more trained professional could answer, is, well, let's say you sort of have, you sort of, you're in discomfort, so you, you adjust your mechanics to to account for that are you then running risk of injuring yourself in a different way so it's like oh the elbow is fine but then i hurt my shoulder it goes right on down the chain so and this doesn't necessarily seem like the best idea to me but i i you know 
And in the meantime, he's had to drop an important secondary pitch. So guys can sit on the fastball, which doesn't seem like it's sinking as much as usual. Oh, and the Cubs. The Cubs can kind of hit the ball a little bit. So, so it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see uh, how he performs against the Cubs tomorrow. Doesn't, in terms of setting a pitcher up to succeed, this doesn't seem like the best scenario for Steven Matz. Yeah, well, it's interesting to be able to use extension and spin rate because the velocity hasn't changed. That's the first thing you'd look at for years. Velocity hasn't changed, but spin rate has. Extension has. Everything is worrisome for me about that. And uh, as we will get into extensively on MLB+, it's not the pitching that's the problem. It's the offense. The Mets haven't hit in about six weeks. Anyway, if you want to hear more about that, join us on MLB Plus on Thursday at 7 Eastern and, and Friday. Friday at 7 Eastern. They are both free, 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 free on MLB TV or in the MLB TV app. It'll be myself uh, and Darren Sutton and at various points Anthony Kestrovitz and uh, Jim Duquette will be joining us and Lindsey Barra and a whole cast of uh, our MLB.com family. The game is free and it's super fun. Thanks for joining us. This has been the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Matt Meyer sitting next to me. I'm Mike Petriello. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week.